Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. We timed ourselves and I said, you have the responsibility to shut up half of the time. And if the other half doesn't feel that silence with words, it's your responsibility to make them. And this would be the number one transferable skill. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. We all know the challenges and frustrations at work when our differences collide and impede our progress, when engineering butts head with sales, when your 52-year-old boss tells you, the ambitious 20-something, that you need more time in seat to get promoted, or when it feels you aren't communicating and connecting with a peer who's the other gender or from a different background. You think that's a culture clash? Imagine this, being physically transplanted to a different country where maybe you speak the language, you probably don't, and you're expected to immediately make change happen. It's like the very rug you stood on getting pulled out from under you. Suddenly, these differences you felt before, they feel like nothing. Cultural differences when working in a different country are really different. And so I figured if you want to understand how to manage and lead across difference, which I would argue is the leadership topic today, then go learn from the person who's been exposed and thought about it and worked on it the most. So I'm extremely excited and honored to have my guest today, Gabor Holsch, an East-West intercultural leadership expert who's helped thousands manage, lead through, and harness culture shock to get ahead and get results. Gabor is founder and general manager of Campanile Management Consulting, and he's no stranger to navigating culture shock. He's been an expat since the age of four, diplomat and business leader, and founded Campanile in 2005 in Shanghai, China, to address the intercultural dimension of leadership. Gabor has served more than 100 clients in more than 30 countries, keynotes events, thinks deeply, writes widely, and is the author of The Dragon Suit, The Golden Age of Expatriate Executives in China, which will be published by Business Expert Press in New York 
this year, 2023. Gabor is also a certified management consultant in English and Mandarin Chinese and licensed in the major assessment and psychometric tools. Gabor, it is great to see you again. Right? Encantado de verte otra vez. Congratulations again on your book during a very challenging time the past few years. Welcome to 97% Effective. Thank you very much, Michael. Igualmente. We will keep our podcast here in, in English, although I know you speak seven languages and, and uh, coach and consult in them as well. You've truly been global. We both have spent decades in China and our paths crossed late, but it was like an, an instant connection when we, when we first met. But I wanted to ask you here at the outset, the name of your company, because you've always been thoughtful about your word choice in your writing. How did you pick the name Campanile, uh, a bell tower, uh, for your firm name? Right. It is a story that is intercultural itself. So I started the company with a Chinese gentleman who, in the meantime, left China and left the business as well. So now I run Campanile alone. But at that time, as many of you might know, if you're interested in business in China, if you want to register an entity in mainland China, you have to register the name in Mandarin Chinese, which means you have to pick the right characters, which is an absolute nightmare because most character combinations that you want to pick are already taken. So uh, he picked a number of characters, which is Ken Paineng, which is still our uh, Chinese name. And then he asked me, to pick an English name which resembles that. And he said, I already have a very good suggestion. Let's call our company, Company. I mean, we will be the only company that is called Company. So I, I, had, to, I had to instantly find a name that convinces him not to use that idea. And Campanile is, um, is an Italian word. So I have major Italian clients who love it that we are called Campanile. But actually, architects use it for bell tower, clock tower. I love the idea of, of, of direction, function, beauty. That's where people gather in Italian towns. And that's how we became Campanile. Fascinating. I didn't know that. So the history started with the Chinese name and moved the other way. Yes, it did. Gabor, I also want to ask you, you're fluent in Mandarin, and it's such a rich language. We will keep our podcast here in English. But of an expression or a Chinese idiom... And an idiom for those out there, four words, tells a story, but usually has multiple layers of, of deeper meaning. Mm. Is, is there one that you particularly like or, or says something about you or your work? There are many that I like. We are talking about showing you these four character combinations. And there are many that I love. And I have a couple on my walls uh, made by a Chinese calligraphy artist. But the one that I use the most in my coaching is Huang Wei Sikao which is um, the, um, the Chinese equivalent of putting yourself into somebody else's shoes or walking in somebody's shoes. So literally it means swap places mentality. Mm. And it basically means have empathy with the person that you're facing or you're working with. And that's why I like using, especially with Mandarin speakers, when I coach, for example, I coach a lot of native Chinese managers who have been promoted to international roles in major global multinational companies. And then, you know, the, the kind of walk in somebody else's shoes, build empathy, you, you have to explain it a little bit. But if you use this Cheng Yu Huang Wei Sukao, you don't have to explain to Chinese people what you mean. It's already there and it's quite embedded. This is a very well-known proverb in Chinese. 
and, and it immediately creates the reference, which is this beauty of being able to, to work and communicate in multiple languages. Since I asked this question, I was thinking about it as well, and it's not necessarily a Chengyu, but it, I, I really like the Moshitoguohe, which is, you know, you mm -hmm. cross the river feeling the stones, which is very right. much about sensing, experimenting um, as you move across, which, which you absolutely need when you're developing new behaviors. I'm sure we will come back to this uh, navigating in fast-moving markets and changing situations. Gabor, more than 25 years working globally um, in multiple capacities, but you've always been attached and focused on intercultural leadership. And one of the things about coaching, wanted to ask you, you get expats, you have a lot of Chinese or Asians who also swap countries, so it's not just west to east, it's also east to west. What is, just off the bat, what we call kind of the presenting issue when they first come to you? What's the challenge they typically have? Well, there was a, a famous stand-up comedian who said solutions start when somebody says, I'm sick and tired of this one thing. So in my coaching is the what do they want from me question. This is, this is the best start because um, I started off as a junior diplomat in international development projects for a security organization. Started off uh, first in the headquarters in Vienna and then uh, in the former Yugoslavia, where um, governments, uh, they granted money for uh, local organizations, governments, uh, also police stations, courthouses, but also NGOs, SMEs, and so on. And they wanted these institutions to, to bid for the money. So this was the first time when I realized how much empathy you have to build in order to, to know what, what those people want from you. What do they want to hear? Not necessarily in sense of, of influencing them, but how do you present yourself in a way that they understand your value proposition the way you meant it to be understood in a completely different context? And that was former Yugoslavia versus, let's say, most of the grants came from places like Germany and, and the United Kingdom. We had some from Japan, which is an interesting challenge, but, but most of them were not huge intercontinental differences. So what, what do these people really want from me? And this is how one of those bosses feels when after decades of management experience and considerable successes, because that's how you get a promotion to a high-level expert job, suddenly you, you, you are basically landing on your ass, sorry, uh, in the sense that suddenly nothing works. And when, when something didn't work, then you, I mean, you were, you were familiar with the legal system. You were familiar with the way people built networks. Suddenly you, you are not familiar with that either. Uh, and you just don't know, you look at those people, you want to help them succeed. You want to succeed yourself. Some of the international managers I coach, for example, European managers in East Asia, their immediate bosses are local. They are, they are Japanese or Korean, Chinese. They really, really wonder, what do these people want from me? This is the original question. And that surges, and then you start to work with them, and, and when you get into it, we will talk through this, but what ends up becoming you know, what they really need? What is the real challenge they typically face? I uh, ended up in this line of business because I was passionately interested in the history of Asia-Europe relations. So I, I spent a lot of my graduate studies researching about uh, people in the colonial times of European colonies in the Far East who were there. And those people had months to prepare. You know, sometimes uh, before steam engines, the, the sea voyage took months. So basically you could learn Chinese 
on while you were on route to China, you could you could use one of the local dialects in the Philippines, and by the time you were there, because there were people who spoke it fluently on the on the ship, you could be fluent by the time you arrived. Now, if they send you as an expat to one of these places, you have weeks to prepare. And if you have to work with people from another culture virtually, then you have minutes to prepare. It's a little bit unfair to expect people to plug in, type in their password and start working. It just just simply doesn't happen. So before it can happen that you can start solving problems, there is something that I call the the boss baby phase. I I elaborate on this in, in Dragon Suit in the book that is forthcoming. When your problem is not how to, you know, not, not, those, not those great jingles that executives, when I start coaching them, expect from me. It's, it's not about motivation. It's not about delegation. It's not about strategy. It's about how to enter a room, how to eat your food, how to sit on a chair, how to dress in the morning. That's what comes first. Because if you make a fool of yourself there, they will not take you seriously in business either, whether it's a supplier or, or, or one of your direct reports. And that's a huge shock. That is something that there is even a lot of denial that it's going on because people simply don't want to deal with this level of culture shock, especially if they are high-level executives and they're used to being right most of the time. I think it would be great to just talk about a, a little probably simplified example here. So if we took one and we'll take a Western leader of a company who, like you said, isn't going to be months moving over, they're, they're parachuted over fairly quickly to go lead right. a new division, say, over in Asia with a, with a multinationals. A few weeks in, leader maybe starts feeling great and optimistic. They got the mini culture training, and they were a superstar back in their organization, which is why they were sent over. But then after a couple of weeks, you get the phone call. The, the new leader is feeling unsettled as you speak, and they don't have their bearings team isn't responding. Maybe HQ is also a little worried, which is why they're contacting you. And the executive's kind of secretly a little stressed out. Team's not responding. As you said, maybe they've got a local boss as well. One of the insights that I thought was quite interesting when I looked at, at, at your work is that the cost of, of getting this wrong is huge, uh, of having a leader who's ineffective. And there might have been some stuff if we wind the clock back that the company or the individual could have done to, to avoid it, the situation, not to say it's irreversible. What, did you, what do you mean by that? I mean, uh, first of all, the cost. I mean, we, we seldom realize how high the costs are. So first of all, to work with an expat is much more expensive than work with a local manager in the first place, even if it works out brilliantly. It is more expensive because uh, those people have usually a higher salary, some additional bonuses, insurance costs, family education, uh, relocation costs, and lots of others. Not to mention that a non-local manager needs additional support because most of the time they don't speak the local language, for example. So they need additional help. But that's assuming that everything will work out brilliantly. So this person, just like you in the cartoonish cliche of how headquarters can imagine it, you know, they you, you, you fly this person like 10,000 miles, then they get out, they have a couple of nights of good sleep, then plug in, type in their passwords and start working. But when it doesn't happen like that, then there is all kinds of costs from, from simply just reputational damage to the company because um, the, the handover is not done well. And of course, all those suppliers, all those customers, all those government agencies, they are waiting for the new boss to make decisions then some of the most talented 
uh, employees, uh, up to mid-management, say, oh, not this again, you know, because uh, the, the average rotation of an expat uh, high-level manager is three years. So if you're working for a company and you, you went from promotion to promotion, you're tired of the international bosses being rotated all the time. And the, the more this new boss struggles, the, the bigger the damage is to, to the reputation among the best employees in the company. So, so these, are, um, these are some of those costs. Of course, you can go back in time and you can do longer handover. You can prepare the manager in their home country for all kinds of challenges. Some of them are linguistic. Why not, why not uh, help them to learn the basics of the language? Some of them technological. For example, you go to mainland China, you will face the Great Firewall. Uh, one, of the, one of the managers that I interviewed for my book, he had an entire course of how to use VPN services back in Brazil. Because once you enter China, it is, it is uh, too late to download that software and learn uh, how to use it. So all of those things. But the very, very important thing, which is missed very often, is that you must see this manager organically in the community where the manager is going to work. It's not, it's not an isolated entity. You also have to look at the temperamental fit with their, with their direct supervisor, with some of the most important direct reports. You have to look at the situation of the family. How old are the kids? Is, is, does the wife intend to work or not? Or does the husband uh, have to look for a job uh, in the new country? So the entire support network of a high-performing individual can be anything from the catastrophic to the very, very helpful, depending on all of these factors. And many companies simply forget to look at it because in the original location, they didn't have to bother with the family. They didn't have to bother with some of these additional factors. It even happens when they, when they transfer somebody from one expat location to another, I, I am absolutely glad that in your introduction, now that you asked me this question, you switched from you switched from transplanted to parachuted. I think it's a much more apt metaphor. I usually say airlifted. When you transplant somebody, they are they are supposed to take roots, but but this is more like airlifting. This is a short-term thing if you look at the change of human behavior. So taking a much more holistic approach, and I know you and I both go crazy because what a lot of organizations will do is you'll get the like the two-day cultural intercultural course, which is yes, yeah, some of the things of a protocol that used to be using two hands to hand over the business card back in the day in, in China. Exactly. You know, which grossly oversimplifies what kind of intercultural communication is, is about. You wrote this in one article that they make ask you, well, how do I as the leader or the company says, you know, how do they better, you know, do business with their Asian team or customers? And you wrote, this is, this is actually the wrong question to ask. Say more about that and, and what is the right question to be, to be looking at first? Well, the wrong question to ask is, let's say, um, I am Italian or I am German. I'm, I'm going to start here because most of my clients are Western multinationals, even if many of the executives I coach and train are actually Asian, promoted to international roles in those companies. But the wrong question to ask is, we have German managers, how do they do business with Japanese managers? Or uh, we are an Italian company, how do we do business with the Chinese? This is the wrong question to ask for multiple reasons, but let me mention two. Number one is in a, in a modern business environment, 
No manager steps out of the comfort zone of their own culture into another culture, right? Uh, what is what usually happens is that if you if you leave that comfort zone of your own culture, then you step into a multicultural world. So even if you are working for let's say the Shanghai branch of a large Italian multinational company, there is zero chance that on on one side, let's say on the higher level managed strategic expat management, everybody will be Italian. And on the other side, everybody will be Chinese. It almost never happens. You, you almost inevitably, uh, you have a couple of uh, French and British and maybe Japanese managers in your team who are all expats. And then on the other side, of course, you are in China, but some of your clients are not Chinese companies. They are, they are a Japanese automotive company or they are, they are I don't know, a, a Korean pharmaceutical company or, or a Brazilian industrial firm. So that's why how to do business with that particular nationality is the wrong question to ask. This is one reason. The other reason is that a lot of the intercultural challenges actually don't come from nationality. It, it's a simplification that researchers very often use because that's the difference that's easier to understand and map and assess. But actually, a lot of the challenge comes from the clash of the corporate cultures of two firms, whether we are talking about your company and your customers or your suppliers, or we are talking about a merger and acquisition. And expats are surrounded much more directly by corporate cultures than by national cultures. So if you want to, want to understand, you want to unpack cultural challenges, very often the answer lies in gaps between corporate cultures and not national ones. So very much expanding. I like what you said. We, we all are trying to simplify and we live in a Twitter universe, but opening up some of these nuances because otherwise people get the tunnel vision. Oh, it's nationality when there are multiple factors here of, of difference or even greater ones, like you said, around culture. Quite, quite useful. And, and you mentioned this kind of first piece in recognizing some of this is what you use the, the word awareness. How do we get it? I know you're also a big fan of assessments early on and, and you are, are certified in many of them. Could you talk about this part of how we get awareness? Actually goes back to your idiom <laughs> at the beginning. Well, the, the first thing is why we don't have awareness. And this is why it's so important. So if you read the statistics about international assignments, actually this is one area of business that companies don't really advertise because... Uh, uh, it, it can be quite frightening. So about at least 10% of international assignments are recalled because they are simply, it doesn't work out. You know, either the company or the experts said, this is not working. A large proportion, I think almost half of the, of the time. Uh, the reason is the family, not the expert, him or herself. And then people just go into expert assignments without knowing how much challenge it is. They, they think it's like moving from, you know, like any other promotion that, they move you from the seventh floor to the 11th floor. And of course, people will, I will have a different job and people who surround me will be different. But that's, that's not like that. You don't go through that shock. So awareness is basically going into this situation, knowing full well which kind of challenges you must prepare yourself for. And one of the very important elements is patience from the expat and also from people who hold the expat accountable for performance. Giving a little bit of time, we are just talking about a couple of weeks for this boss baby phase. You're, you're, not, you're not capable of performing on the same level. This is, this is number one. So allow yourself. You would be surprised how many, 
high-level executives are in a complete state of disrepair at the very beginning of the coaching. So they say, listen, I have only been in this position for two weeks or two months, but I think, I think they promoted me by mistake. I don't think I will be able to do this. You know, what, what do these people really want from me? Why is it that the methodologies that I used don't work here? I do the same thing. Why don't they do the same thing back? And then only the second one is a, how do you say, more structured level of awareness when we map the differences. I, I say map because there is, there is a family of tools, tools called culture maps that I like using. We map the differences between your home culture or your previous locations culture and the destination culture and the difference between the two corporate cultures. And let's say if they promoted you from the world of sales to strategic management, then the difference between the cultures of those two professional areas as well. And that's pretty much where awareness ends and we have to step over to the doables. And, and so once you've kind of got that map, it sounds like you understand generally where you're coming from, where you're going, or the environment that you're in. What comes next? Once you build the awareness, it, it already suggests or implies many of the steps forward. And one of them is when you use these culture mapping methodologies, they, they deal with uh, directions in the sense there is up, down, left, and right. This is why we call it a map. And for example, if the gap is around the, um, uh, let's say, the vertical axis, which is, which is more outgoingness, more competitiveness on the top of the map, versus a more empathy-based, more teamwork-based, more go-with-the-flow mentality or, or approach to leadership. And then when you discover that the culture gap is along this axis, then people start asking me, oh, so you mean people who represent this culture, cultural group, they are a little bit like a demanding father, right? Or they are a little bit like an, like an over-obedient employee who always wants the boss to tell them what to do next. So uh, actually, this, this whole thing comes from Jungian psychology, which is, which is full of these symbolic human relationships that you already kind of understand because you saw them in school and then you, you saw them when you were at university and you see, you see them in TV shows. You know? there, are, there are people who dole out tough love. You, know? you don't necessarily like them, but at the end of the day, it's in your interest to listen to them. There are those kind of people who would not talk to you, just keep listening until it's even a little bit disconcerting. But then you find out that they listen to everything that you said and they give you two words of wisdom. And this, this whole methodology is structured around these kind of basic human behaviors. And if you understand this, then you can understand not only national differences, but generational differences, for example, or when they promote you from top sales to sales manager, which is a completely different kind of behavior. And when these, these things happen all at the same time, so you got like a promotion from top sales to sales manager in a different business unit with a different culture in a different country. That's when it becomes extremely interesting. A very important thing that they very often forget, um, uh, even in, I, I know that you work with students. So for example, they teach culture mapping in business programs. They don't teach mapping the individual into the culture map, which is extremely important because just because you come from Spain, you're not necessarily a typical Spanish person. Just because you come from Japan, you're not necessarily a typical Japanese. So where are you in this culture? Where do you fit in personally? Yeah, so this is a much richer view. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach Michael Winderoff. 
If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. Help me out here, Gabor. I know we have talked about this, and I've never been huge, huge fan of, of some of these intercultural tools because they, they can have the tendency to reduce you know, groups into stereotypes. And so I've historically avoided this, but having conversations with you has made me look at it more because also so many people, I've got these challenges of navigating across this difference and they want to know <laughs> what to do. Can you just comment on how you kind of balance that? I think the, the laying the individuality and personalities is there. Anything else that prevents this from being reduced to stereotypes, dangerous stereotypes sometimes? Yeah, so there is a difference between stereotypes and bias. And I know that we, we conflate too, but stereotypes are simplistic sets of data, information about a group of humans, but they, are, they can be helpful. So it's better to know a stereotype than not to know anything about a, um, a typical human community. So bias is when a stereotype is, is paired with a negative connotation. We say these people behave like this and they should behave in a different way. Now, uh, let me explain just in one minute. The reason why we have stereotypes is that most communities, like let's say countries or ethnic groups, they have a cultural mainstream. You know, societies do have this kind of, let me put personality or temperament. There are patient societies and not so patient societies. There are fun-loving and serious societies. But only about half of the people in any community represent that mainstream, right? And the other half goes all over the place. So that's why we have stereotypes, but we also have people who don't fit the stereotype. Then uh, you have to look at the individual. Either you can use assessment if you want to, but if not, I can teach people in my coaching to read body language, to read uh, the choices of vocabulary that people use, for example, at meetings or, or when you discuss work with them, and, um, and, and find um, what uh, typical behavioral styles they represent, uh, you know, how they, how they express themselves. Are they competitive or more like go with the flow? Are they task-focused or people-focused? So this is, this is where the stereotyping ends, so to speak. And then the very important thing is turn the rhetorical question, what do these people want from me, into a genuine question. What do they really want from me and how to achieve that in a language that they understand? So, Gabor... It sounds like there's huge value when in your team you can start to map out these things and understand. Not all companies will do that. Not everyone has kind of the, their you know, personality or where they're coming for on their foreheads. Are there ways that people can kind of detect or should be attentive to to see what those styles may be without having to do an you know, in-depth assessment and, or their teams may be changing constantly as well? There are two ways to read people relatively easily. And then this is something you will hear from anybody, from uh, hostage negotiators to coaches to your grandmother. And one is body language. So, uh, and, and this is something that actually we, we, this is how films communicate. This is how actors communicate. This is, this is how children or teenagers communicate when they kind of want to uh, politique their parents. You know, if, if mommy doesn't allow me to do, then I'm going over to daddy and I will ask. So 
Um, there is, there is the, the body language of confrontation. There is the body language of withdrawn confrontation. I have a problem with you, but I'm not really telling you. There is um, a body language of interest, of, of being pleased, and so on. So try to be very, very open to this. And this is actually not so difficult. Wherever you are in the world, just go online. You watch some videos in your native language. There are always some people who can, who can like, show you a, a crash course of the basics of human body language. What does it mean if somebody avoids eye contact and crosses their arms? Um, what uh, part of body language also is tone of voice, you know, hesitation, slowing down, raising your voice, stammering a little bit. This is number one. The other one uh, is uh, choice of words. How do people express themselves? And, and uh, since I, I don't work with, I don't work on careers, but I work with people very often during an important career transition. And that's when they have to rewrite their bio or their CV. And I like taking uh, highlighters of different colors and, and look together at how you express yourself because it's basically a walking behavioral assessment. On my blog, I have an article uh, which is called Can They Figure You Out in Five Minutes? And it, it takes the act of entering a meeting room a little bit ahead of time sitting down, greeting people until the actual meeting starts. And then it looks at how you express your behavioral style with all these little acts of, do you enter the room? Do you enter hesitantly? Do you look around? Do you sit with people you know, or do you sit at the head of the room where nobody sits yet? All of those things says so much. And when you start talking, are you a contrary? You know, all those kind of people who... You say, you are a contrary because you like disagreeing and they will say, no, I'm definitely not. Um, or do you start a conversation by listening? These are the two best sources. I know that you need a little bit of extra information, like watch which behavior tells you what about the person. But this is something that is fairly easy to, to decode. Also, it's surprisingly uh, culture independent, right? They ran many many experiments with you can you can you can recognize if somebody is in pain or angry or pleased whichever country they come from it's not like a language you you say that it's easy to decode but people don't do it we started about culture shock and expatriate across cultures but have really expanded this in many different ways that are very universal about managing across difference. If you just take a step back here and, and think about kind of the transferable skill or notion, because intercultural, everyone thinks immediately of cultures. Anything you would just call out as we walk through this example? Because I think this is a very powerful tool and yes. skill that you need everywhere. In an earlier stage of my career, I often trained salespeople or customer service people. And there was this soundbite I used uh, by a classical music composer from my native country, Hungary, Béla Bartók, who said, good music is half silence. And I think a good conversation is also half silence. So when I worked with salespeople or customer service representatives, we timed ourselves and I said, you have the responsibility to shut up half of the time. And if the other half doesn't feel that silence with words, it's your responsibility to make them. And this would be the number one uh, transferable skill. You know, unfortunately, in business and in leadership, 
we are so preoccupied with the message that we want to deliver that we completely forget about the other half of the conversation. So actually, sometimes I just need to, 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 to teach or to coach very ambitious corporate executives to breathe and listen. These two things, they, they fit together. Because if you, if you try to listen without breathing, then there is this kind of background noise in your head that starts um, getting louder and louder. And actually, you can, you can for example, asking open questions, uh, listening actively, meaning you, you know specifically what kind of analytical units you want to watch out for in the other person's speech, verbal behavior. And then it becomes much more, uh, much easier to, to pick up on that kind of information as well, like which uh, primary behavioral style they represent. Am I talking to somebody who will, you know, expect me to challenge them and will only respect me and only work with me if the challenge is high enough? Or am I working with somebody who wants me to make them feel safe and comfortable? Because actually, it's not difficult to play these roles if I know what these roles are, right? If you take the average person, business person who, let's say, was in, in, the, in the Marines, uh, this person is, is, is trained for all kinds of tough things. But these people are perfectly capable of looking after others and keeping them safe, if that's the role. Of course, if they have to, if they have to just pick somebody up and rescue them from a fire, or they have to stop somebody from harming others, they can do that too. But it has to be clear what the other person expects me to do. And then once I was a good enough listener and structured enough listener that I can understand the other side the way I would understand the contract. You know, the other person just wants, wants some kind of behavior from you and you're either okay with it or not. Then you can adjust your behavior and it becomes surprisingly straightforward. I mean, I keep saying this and uh, people keep not believing me, but you can break down very complex cultural behaviors to these, to these fairly simple units. There is this part of listening and adapting, but oftentimes we see a lot of individuals go too far and, or you get the, I'm doing everything to fit into that culture and suddenly I've, I've lost myself or I've lost kind of the thing that I'm supposed to do here. It's not to make everyone culture, you know, comfortable and adapt. Can you talk about that kind of fine line that you've got to manage because that comes up all the time? Well, first of all, when I, when I prepare, especially Western uh, individuals, but also an executive from, I don't know, somewhere like Japan, uh, to, to work with uh, smart Chinese people, I tell them, you have to be very careful because they are excellent listeners. So China is an interest, interesting society because when you look at culture maps, it's grouped together with other, and I'm using air quotes here, other Confucian societies like South Korea and, and, and Japan. But actually... Chinese people are conditions for, for both sides of the cultural equation, so to speak. They, they bring with them from the family these Confucian values of, of, of uh, strong empathy and good listening skills and uh, kind of decoding behavior of the other person. But also they, they live in a, uh, in a communist country where the price of making certain kind of mistakes is extremely high. So they are also used to being alert and reading between the lines. So Chinese people can pretend a casual conversation back and forth with a lot of jokes and, and snacks and so on. And they pick up very, very easily on important things you say. Uh, mainstream European cultures, for example, North American cultures, even Latin America, naturally by, by, by our 
usual conditioning, we are not great listeners. So this is something if you want to think strategically uh, in a zero-sum game, this is very easy to, uh, easily becomes a weakness because we pick up half as much information as a typical Chinese manager who survived to the point where they work with you from the, exactly the same conversation. In Chinese business culture, it's uncool to get upset because uh, when you get upset, then you start expressing yourself without listening. And uh, also, once you decide that you listen in a Chinese context, you realize how difficult it is to make them speak. So these are the skills that I usually try to pass on or try to focus on with Western executives. First, the awareness that just because your East Asian counterpart chatters away about the weather and their family and food, it doesn't mean they don't listen and don't observe. Uh, this is the difference between East and the difference between East and West. And then secondly, uh, what they very often call active listening, which is basically halfway between just yammering all the time and, and being silent, just asking the right, usually open questions to guide the conversation in a direction that you would like it to go. Gabor, there's so many topics we could go on to in examples here, and, and I encourage people to look at your blog and your writing. Let's shift to talk about your, your book that has just come out, is coming out. Not to spoil it, I have read it, um, and it really looks kind of at the, the meta picture of your work with expats, particularly in China on both sides, and lessons that we can kind of draw from that. So, so to talk about your book, there's plenty of people that would be harder today to, to not notice China, and we're moving into an era of division, but why would someone who's not involved with China or even Chinese be interested in picking it up, or what would they get out of it? Well, first of all, we live in an age where if you don't come to China, then China will come to you. So I can, I can recommend a book to support that point is A Year Without Made in China. So there was a researcher who tried to live in the United States for one year without using anything made in China. And it was, it was uh, quite a torture for the author. Uh, this is number one. Number two, almost in any industry right now in the developed world, you are not even three, you're two degrees or one degree of separation away from China. So you must understand something you build into your own solutions as it comes from China or something goes to China that you really, really uh, want to sell. But also I think it's just a very interesting society. It's one of those last, you know, uh, blank slates on everybody's mental map. Because uh, I, I was born in the early 70s. I was a teenager in the 80s. You know, it, uh, there were pop songs about Japan and there were pop songs about uh, one night in Bangkok. But there was nothing about the People's Republic of China. It just came into our maps very, very recently. So I think to understand what is rapidly becoming the most important market, one of the biggest economies, perhaps the biggest economy, I think you are doing yourself a disservice if you don't know how it works. It's a little bit like being born in, in Switzerland or South Africa and not knowing too much about the United States. And follow up on that idea that you said of the, the blank slate, because it is very shocking to me how many Westerners really don't understand China, even at a superficial level. And, and I'm fine of the saying, right, we're going to have a lifetime of inescapable engagement with China. 
speak to that because you go out and you speak a lot. You're a keynote speaker. You have a lot of executives who come over. You know, sometimes for the first time, it's surprising how many come over and haven't done their homework on China. <laughs> so what would you say, because your book covers lots of topics, but what is one of those blank slates, maybe we can talk about that, that you think is really important or, do you, or you'd like people to, to know about from the book and, and why you wrote it? Well, one thing that we have to keep in mind, and, and not to be too uh, judgmental of those all those people all over the world who don't know enough about China, is that China worked long and China worked hard to be an enigma. And this continues to the present day. So it's not a coincidence, for example, if you're sitting in, in Boston or you're sitting in Paris and then suddenly one, one day you wake up and you say, I want to do business with Mexico or I don't want to do business with Indonesia. You can just get on Facebook and you can find a dozen people in the same industry who can help you out. Basically, you just drop them a message and you know, if you drop 12 messages, then three of them will message back. With mainland China, that's impossible. We have no major social media that connects China with the rest of the world. And that's not a coincidence. That's not, that, not a technological glitch. That is very, very intentional on behalf of uh, China's government. And there are lots of other uh, examples as well. If you incorporate an entity in China, you don't incorporate an entity like a Chinese person starting a company in the US. It's not an American, uh, it's an American company. In China, you incorporate a foreign invested enterprise, which is legally completely different from a Chinese enterprise. So I think this is one thing. We have to be aware of it. As you say in America, it's not a bug, it's a feature. So that is already very important. Once you're aware of that, then you can you can start asking the questions. So it seems that I am the one who has to take a step towards them because, frankly, they they have no way of stepping a, a, a step towards me. What do I do? And then sometimes it is download WeChat, you know, which is uh, which is a an internationally very seldom used app which keeps China together as we speak from health uh, codes to buying things online, but also people-to-people exchange. This is not just number one. Number two, uh, just days before we record this podcast, and I think around the time when the podcast will come out, China will reinstate issuing visas, visitor visas, tourist visas, business visitor visas to the, to the rest of the world, which was suspended for years. So I don't know if you're really interested, just get on a plane and, and, and spend a couple of days in China, maybe a couple of days in another country as well. There are lots and lots and lots of great books about China. And I would, I would also recommend pick up a book written on China by one of your compatriots. You know, it's not necessarily if you're, if you're from, from Thailand or from Iran and you want to do business with China. The, the latest uh, American published book or may not be your thing, but there is a, around you there is a diplomat or a merchant who made a YouTube video or wrote a book about how they did business with China in your own native language. So it's the very important thing is currently, and unfortunately in the last couple of years, this has increasingly been the case. We have to take a step towards China. Finally, and this is, this is actually brilliant and I'm very, very excited about it. And at the end of the book, I share it. Find Chinese people around you. Because there is a, uh, a Chinese diaspora in the world, uh, counting millions and millions of people. There is somebody near you. Ridiculously, I, I returned to Hungary because I wasn't able to go back to China during the zero COVID policy. And I, I went back to my old home, but very soon I moved 
in both of my Budapest homes, my neighbor is Chinese. <laughs> so you don't have to go far. You know, if I can find them in Budapest, you can find them in Boston. Talk to them. <laughs> ask them. <laughs> How do you do that in your home country? Yeah. It's very fascinating because here in Madrid, the, the community of Chinese are primarily from Qingtian, which is down near Wenzhou, which is a, a, mm. a, a very interesting learning from me from you know, being in different parts of the states where the communities were from other regions of, of China. What, one last thing I want to ask you on the book, Gabor, because you are a deep thinker about things. And I know we have talked about most of management and leadership thinking, let's be very frank, is, is, is very Western in its origins. Harvard Business Review, kind of Western notions and the contributions to management or the definitions of management and leadership theory. You have spent time in China. You have also worked with a lot of incredible Chinese leaders, particularly those who are running their companies going global. Reflections on you know, contributions or shifts to how we might think about effective leadership and management from China? I think I have just the thing to say. When I was a graduate student in the 90s, I think what you, what you told me just now uh, to introduce the question was much more true than today. So at that time, the best books are published in, in, in countries like United Kingdom, United States, perhaps uh, Germany and so on. But in the, in the mid-90s, when, when I was reading the Huntington and Fukuyama, you know, most of the, uh, of the books that came out of the United States actually reflected the United States point of view. It, it's not necessarily true anymore. For more than a decade now, half or more of the PhD students in the United States are not from the United States. And the cultural diversity is, is wider and wider. My favorite intercultural leadership guru is called Mai Nien, originally Vietnamese, and then researched for a French university and then an American university. Obviously, her research comes out of the United States a lot of time. But look at me. I am Hungarian. I spent my childhood in the Middle East. I lived in China for 20 years. I will publish my next book with a New York publisher. So strictly speaking, again, my research comes out of the United States. But this mainly happens this way because the United States has amazing funding and a, a great way of like peer pressuring people into high performance. So a lot of, a lot of people who want to do something great and, and want to publish a great book or want to make a good video, they do it in the United States. However, look at the books, some of my favorite methodologies, Kaizen, the book was written in the United States, but original methodology comes from Japan. Mainan's research, or she did most of her research in, in Asia and the Pacific. So even, even those books that are published in the US very often reflect another mindset and a lot of diversity. And now China, I mean, for a Chinese researcher or consultant, it's actually a little bit risky to publish their book in the West, but China has become one of the top sources of data on anything. And that is absolutely amazing because such amount of digital data comes out of China that very often what happens is the, the so-called American book that you read is a Chinese researcher's researcher leaving Beijing University or Fudan University, going over to American University, downloading the, the data that comes from China, Japan, Singapore, and publishing it. So it's, it's worthwhile looking behind the cover and not judging the book too quickly, in my opinion. 
So Gabor, a fantastic discussion today. I really thank you for your time. In the show notes, we will put links to all the places. What's the best place for people to connect to you to see your work? Actually, if you downloaded this podcast or listening in any major podcast app, then you can see my full name. And it's fairly easy to uh, find me online because my first name, Gabor, is quite common in Hungary and my last name, Holsch, is originally from Denmark and it's fairly common there. But in this combination, Gabor Holsch, you can find me very, very easily. If you just want to follow my work, my book, my articles, my videos, you can find them by my full name. If you want to reach out to me, then just find one of the websites I run click on the contact tab and then you can, whatever you type in there, I will get it as an email. And I'm, I'm really always happy to hear from people who listen to us. Gabor Holsch, East-West intercultural leadership expert. Fantastic to have you on today and congratulations again on your book coming out. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It has been great to talk to you and I hope that next time it's going to be over our, one of our favorite poisons. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com That's www.changwinderoth.com Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.